0: On this episode, Patrick McLaughlin, a Senior Research Fellow and Director of Policy Analytics here at Mercatus, discusses the latest economic situation report by Dr. Bruce Yandel, who is a Distinguished Adjunct Fellow here at Mercatus. They talk about inflation, regulatory accumulation, money, employment, and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu.
1: Today, we're going to discuss the latest economic situation report, a long running series authored by Bruce Yandel. Bruce Yandel joins me here today. Bruce is a old friend, colleague, mentor and consummate gentleman based out of Clemson, South Carolina, where he was previously the dean of the business school, among other things. Bruce, thank you for joining me again.
0: Sure, great to be with you again, Patrick. And we what do we have a lot to talk about?
1: We do indeed, a lot of ground to cover. Let's start by addressing the the elephant in the room, inflation. It is the uh the main topic of your report and also the main topic of much news for the last several months, really. Various difficult situations have, have come up in the last past year, maybe a couple of years. A number of factors have certainly contributed to the inflation surge, such as COVID and the subsequent COVID relief, the war in Ukraine, and the probably not unrelated supply chain issues among those factors. So with respect to inflation, what are your thoughts, Bruce, on what has transpired this past year and the latest actions taken over the past couple of months by the Fed or or otherwise?
0: I think it may be useful for us to uh, do our best to go back to about this time last year. Let's go back to January of last year and look at the situation then. 2021's GDP growth had come in like gangbusters, 5.7%. It was an economy sort of coming back from the dead, and so you get a high growth rate. Inflation was getting worrisome. It was at 7% which incidentally is about where it is right now, again, after having been high. The unemployment rate was 4%. In my economic situation report last December, I summarized forecasts for GDP growth for this year, and the number was about 3%. Most of the forecasters and organizations said, we've got a good year ahead of us, maybe 3% growth. And the Fed said, It's going to be low interest rates continuing. In 2022, the Fed made a forecast that what they call the federal funds rate would not exceed 1%. Right now, it's four and a quarter. And so COVID recovery was certainly in the works. There had been a huge amount of stimulus added to the economy, unprecedented, nothing like it. In modern times, a mountain of money had been shoveled into the economy in different ways to try to assist people who were suffering from COVID disruption, small businesses that were trying to make their payroll, farmers who were having trouble paying their debt, on and on. We're talking about 3 or $4 trillion that had been dropped into the economy. And so there was this massive increase in the amount of money that was circulating. And so oil prices were beginning to rise a little bit, but nonetheless, it was sort of an, it was certainly an optimistic view of what this year would be like that we are now concluding. And so now, as we fast forward to the present, where we are today, looking back, we can say, okay, what changed? We still have COVID difficulties associated with it, but they are mild compared to what we had. We, we no longer have a shutdown economy, nowhere. We still have a lot of money floating around. It's estimated that we have a trillion and a half of excess savings, that is savings beyond what would be the normal level under circumstances like this. A lot of money is floating around. It's out there trying to buy. But then the big thing, it seems to me, Patrick, that enters the picture, that disrupted everything, was the February invasion of Ukraine, which basically, I'll exaggerate, closed the valves for natural gas, closed the valves for oil and natural gas coming into Europe, disrupted the energy economy, and perhaps even worse, if anything could be worse, disrupted the supply of grains and foodstuffs to the world. And so we then get a rapid run-up in energy prices and costs, and a rapid run-up in food costs. Inflation takes off. All along, the disruptions that were present from COVID, people thought, well, give us time. These will go away. It's a transitional problem. And so as this year then moved along, attitudes about inflation changed from this is transitional, it'll go away, to this is embedded, and we're going to have a hard time getting rid of it. And so the Fed changed its tune. It raised its forecast of what interest rates were going to be practically every time the Federal Open Market Committee met. And as I mentioned in the meeting this Wednesday, they raised rates. And now that guidance that they have is four and a quarter percent. Big run up in interest rates in a short period of time. Still have a lot of money floating around in the economy. People trying to shop and buy, waiting for cars to get on the car lots. What might be called excess demand. Still have disrupted supply, and we have that war in Ukraine, which is really horrible and disruptive. And so, there we are. The thing that could not be predicted, of course, I think, is the war. Maybe the rest of it could have been predicted with some degree of accuracy, but let's face it, we're not real good at forecasting the behavior of this world economy. If we ever were, I don't think we're real good right now, anyhow. But let me pause there and uh, uh, I'll take a breath. Tell me what you think.
1: But you, you make a very good, uh, several good points there, but a couple that I'd like to to highlight. I want to put that number three or $4 trillion for stimulus injected into the economy in the, towards the end of the uh, Trump administration in the first year of the Biden administration in perspective, well, how big is that? Uh, you know, it's hard to really wrap your head around a, a trillion. What? So, what is three or four trillion maybe relative to the whole economy?
0: Oh, 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 gosh, I, 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 you've got my mind spinning. We're talking about the equivalent of all of total retail sales on an annual basis.
1: Wow. Yeah, something like twenty percent of uh, annual GDP. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a big number. And so, going back to your point, some of this stuff could have been predicted. It should be predictable that if you inject three or four trillion dollars into the money supply that inflation will follow. But as you say, some stuff was less less predictable. Let's look forward. The other number you mentioned was about 1.5 trillion in excess savings. When does that run out? And then what can policymakers expect?
0: That's the big question. But I want to go back. There are parts of economic behavior that can be predicted with enough accuracy that it's healthy. It's helpful to decision makers and the rest of us trying to figure out what is going on to look at those relationships. And there's a relationship between money and the economy and inflation and growth in GDP, well-established, been around a long time. And that is what is called the equation of exchange. Irving Fisher first broadcasted it, uh, we're talking about, over 100 years ago. It has been studied. And so when we look at those trillions of dollars that fell into the economy, the question immediately emerges, what will this do to the price level in the future and how long will it take? What will it do to GDP growth, if anything, and how long will it take? But in the meantime, we can't get GDP growth to jump out in a hurry, and so we've got all this money chasing goods put your name on the waiting list for a new pickup truck, and we'll call you when they come in, seemed to be the status quo. There's about a one-year lag, Patrick, between growth in the money supply and what might happen to the economy as a result, particularly with respect to the price level. And so now, if we look at the growth of the money supply, there's a common measure called M2, but if we look at the growth in the money supply, monthly, year over year, and look at the shape of that and say, okay, by the way, it's almost negative right now. That says about a year from now, there will surely be a sharp slowdown in prices and the economy. So we're talking about a year from now. Looks like recession material, if you want to call it that. So along the way, this excess money begins to wear out. So a year from now, I think we will see the meaningfully the effects of that with inflation falling not to 2%, which is the desired target, maybe to 3 about a year from now. Now, that equation of exchange doesn't know anything about wars in Ukraine. It doesn't know anything about disruptions and I can't get enough chips to build another automobile so we still have the supply chain problems that are in there, a lack of capacity, we have people reluctant to come back to work, we have a low participation rate, and so all I'm saying, there are a lot of moving parts to this puzzle. Some of them are pretty well understood and established, and I think sometimes we forget to even focus on that part of what we understand as we look at the chaos in the data and the activities about us. And so we can look and see out there, out a year from now, the effects of what we now have of a slowdown in the growth of the municipality, orchestrated by the Fed, that would be offset. But Patrick, we economists always have to stop and say, oh, by the way, other things being the same, And there are a lot of other things. One of those things is deficit spending by Congress in our picture.
1: Do you want to? Do you want to talk about that for a while? Are you? I. There's been some deficit spending in the past few years. Is probably more to come. So how does that play into this picture?
0: More to come. Uh, In a sense, we have. uh, If if I'll, I'll put it this way, we have a capital city in a policy sense at war with itself, we have the Fed that has the responsibility to manage the monetary system, uh, to achieve price stability, they have a dual mandate, and also to maintain reasonable growth and employment. So there they are hitting the brakes, raising interest rates, saying we're doing our best to slow down the economy so that we can squeeze this inflation out of the system. On the other side of town, we have the Congress making promises that have to be kept, spending that has to go up, serious problems that they're trying to deal with. And dealing with those problems means running a deficit in our world. Running a deficit means fundamentally printing some more money. And so while the Fed is hitting the brakes, Congress and our president is trying to deal with promises made to university students who carried out a lot of debt. We want to forgive that debt. They want to forgive the debt. But to forgive the debt means that the debt's still there on books. It's just got to be paid by somebody else. And that means selling bonds and running more deficits. So, so we have that challenge. Now, as the year moves on, this is a challenge that is being faced not just here, throughout the Western world, I would say throughout the developed world, price of energy, cost of heating homes has become almost unbearable in many places, given a person's income and ability to pay. Governments in Germany, Europe, United Kingdom, Or printing money, putting it in the pockets of their consumers so they can pay their heating bills. That feeds into our inflation too. And so we have a world that has an inflation problem. We have a world, I would say, that has a printing press money problem. And we understand the stories and why. But we do have an economy, as I describe it in the report, is one with two faces. One face really looks good. Everybody who wants a job, it seems, ought to be able to get one. Retail sales are great. Employment is strong. But then we have the runaway price level that is eroding away the purchasing power of the money that people carry in their pockets. And let's not forget
1: that energy is such an important input, not only to the obvious things like heating your house or driving your, your car, but into the production of almost all the goods that that everyone consumes from food to, to trinkets, right? And so that, that's going to be affecting prices probably for a long time if this war extends and keeps energy prices disrupted. But Let's suppose that, as you say, in a year or so, some of the Fed's actions start to bear fruit, at least, on, at least on inflation. But on the other side of that same coin, maybe the economy has slowed down. You put some predictions in your report ranging from next year, maybe seeing slight negative growth to maybe very slight positive growth. Is there anything policymakers should be doing, maybe apart from not engaging in deficit spending, what else should policymakers be doing to to address the growth situation that's that's forthcoming, that's predictably forthcoming next year, slow growth? Maybe something on the supply side could be in their court.
0: It would be a wonderful time, Patrick, and, and, and sometimes tough times inspire some innovation and leadership. It would be a wonderful time to focus on the supply side of the economy. If we look at this inflation overall effect, well, the consumer price index for November was up 7.1%. If we look at that 7.1% and said, okay, let's see if we can't just get a little bit of a handle on what part of that might be accounted for by disruptions in the Ukraine war, food, energy. Well, there are two components in there. If you take out the food and energy, which is done routinely, we've got a 6.0%. So that's a 15% of the inflation as measured by the CPI. We could say crudely, is associated with food and energy changes in prices. And that is primarily a disruption from Ukraine. If we then try to say, well, what about some of these other bottlenecks that are out there? Not enough ships to carry the goods, not enough people to unload the ships, on and on. Some studies of this say that the supply chain disruptions altogether account for about one-third of the overall inflation. I just did a little bit of a back-of-an-envelope study myself on the effects of tariffs. Tariffs collected by the United States from all of us consumers who go out shopping, particularly this time of year, Tariffs are equivalent to 1.4% of total retail sales in the U.S. And so if we took the tariffs off, if Alice in Wonderland came and took off the tariffs overnight, it won't happen that way, of course. Retail prices would fall. Maybe by 1.4%, that part of our inflation would go away. Of course, it doesn't happen, but it's helpful sometimes to look at that. But I think it's more important for us not to be episodic or not to look at just some categories of things, but to look more systematic, more systematically at sand that has been put into the gears of an operating economy, always with some reason, but sand that has been put into gears, sometimes for reasons that have long since passed that might be taken out, and I'm referring to, what you spend 24 hours a day on, and that's the regulation that comes from the federal government as well as from state and local governments. You know, in this report, Patrick, you put in a chart that shows the count of restrictions as measured by counting specific words in the code of federal regulations. From 1970, On to the most recent year, this year, probably 2021, but we go from 400,000 to 1 million counts of restricted words, shall not, must, will, direct orders, command and control language is found in the Code of Federal Regulations. Well, every one of those words is a restriction or a constraint. And so the more constraints we have in the overall system, the more difficult it is for any actor in the economy to create a new enterprise, to innovate, to experiment, to go out and form some new kind of search for a way to lower costs. These constraints have to be satisfied. And so finding systematically a way to review not just on you elected me to office and we're going to get this done in the first 60 days, but on a continuing basis and finding ways to achieve the goals of the regulations where those goals are still considered to be important without using so much sand in the gears. Sometimes it's not that we regulate, it's how we have regulated that is imposing such high costs on the economy
1: you you are indeed touching on a subject that i have spent a good portion of my time on the analogy to sand in the gears of a machine is a great one it's this it, if you think of it another way every decision made by regulatory agencies at the federal level but also at the state level also in your in your local township municipalities also create regulations These decisions are typically made in isolation. Do we need a specific regulation to deal with a specific problem, real or perceived? And rarely, uh, I would say probably never, is that decision made with a view to the bigger picture. The accumulation of all the regulations that that chart shows from 1970 or even before 1970, that chart goes back to 1970, but of course we've been making regulations since really the late 1800s uh, at the federal level in the U.S., and they've been accumulating over time. And that has been described as, you're familiar with the, uh, the phrase death by a thousand cuts. This is death by a million cuts. So we have over a million now of these restrictions. I think the way to think about this and sort of Try to wrap your head around what does that mean to have a million restrictions on the books? Well, many, many cities, D.C., uh, New York uh, and Seattle, chief among them in L.A., San Francisco, I should mention, have very expensive home prices, as you know. And the primary reason home prices have gotten so expensive is because new homes are not being built. Uh, at least not at any sort of pace to match the demand for, for new homes. Why aren't new homes being built? There's demand there. There's people with money ready to pay for them. The reason is it takes a long time to get through all the regulations, all the permitting that's required to go through. Sometimes there's zoning requirements that will restrict how big of a home you can build as well. And that's, that's sort of getting into the type of regulation that you make, not just are there regulations, but, you know, just, just running through all the permitting. Uh, It's been estimated that it would take over 10 years if we started now to build all of the the housing we need in, say, New York to get prices back to the level we saw just pre-pandemic. And why 10 years? It does not take 10 years to build a house, Bruce. It (laughs) takes 10 years to get through all of the paperwork that all of the regulations have been building up, accruing over time. So the question we have to ask is, does every last restriction leading to that 10 years of paperwork actually create some tangible benefit that we are willing to pay that cost to achieve? And I think the answer is no. I think that there is going to be a lot of low-hanging fruit if only we could focus on reviewing old regulations and getting rid of the ones that are not doing any good. We could pick that low-hanging fruit and juice economic growth from the supply side by removing some of that sand that is in the gears. And this has been shown to be the case. I mentioned in the report British Columbia, the province of Canada, having gone down this road before. They, In the 1990s, that province experienced dismal economic growth for several years, a new government was elected on a platform of economic reform back in 2001. And in the buildup to that election, the the candidate who ended up taking power there became their premier, the, their version of a governor, had promised to cut regulations by one third. And once that new party took office... They figured out, well, we actually don't know how to measure regulation. I don't know how to say that we've actually cut by a third. But then they said, well, let's just do our best. And what they ended up doing was settling on a measure of regulation that very much resembles what I've put into the report. They counted up what they called regulatory requirements, the same sort of thing, requirements to take some sort of action or file some paperwork. And they said, all right, we're going to cut that by a third they did it. They did it by implementing a regulatory budget. This puts in the hands of regulatory agencies. There's a vast number at the federal level and in states and even at local levels of people who work for regulatory agencies. There's a ready-made workforce here. And the British Columbia government said, all right, that ready-made workforce, we're going to turn them to the task of looking back at old regulations and if they ever want to make a new one, that's fine. They need to achieve their mission. But to do so, they have to look back at the old ones, pick some of those low-hanging fruit, get rid of the ones that aren't doing any good. And they did that. And Bruce, they cut regulations not by just one-third, but by 40% within three years. The economy responded tremendously. And almost immediately, the economy started growing. They gained, uh, gr- growing more than they were before. They gained a percentage point in economic growth in response to this this regulatory reform. That was structural, as you say. It's a a very long-term sort of plan. By the way, BC is still doing it today. They've been running this regulatory budget where they say for every new thing you make, every new regulatory requirement you make, you have to find some old ones to get rid of. So the sky hasn't fallen. The economy has done well. And there is a path forward for supply-side reform, I think, that is, uh been clearly demonstrated north of the border.
0: That's a wonderful story. And there are other stories that you know that, that, that need to be brought to the fore. And, and I think that the other thing, wonderful thing about the story, Patrick, is that this is saying, hey, you think it's tough to get regulatory reform through the federal government? It is tough. But we've got 50 states. We've got hundreds of municipalities. And so let's try to bring this message and this lever to bear wherever we can. And there's something else about this regulatory state that develops that we now have. We have an intertwined economy where most every transaction that is meaningful is in some way confronted by rules and regulations that have to be dealt with. And that gets to be a part of life. But there are distributional effects. Regulations, the heavier the burden, the better off the larger firms and enterprises are relative to the smaller firms and enterprises. There are economies of scale in dealing with regulation and dealing with government. And so the big guys can shrug and handle it, and they have a legal staff, or they have a Washington staff, and this is just one more chore to take care of. But the guys who are trying to get an enterprise started, or who are just getting going, will not have that economy of scale in dealing with the regulatory process. And so the regulatory process then makes it possible for the bigger guys to survive longer, smaller ones not to do as well. And we see that in the data on our economy. When you look at the dynamics of the U.S. economy, We see the big ones are failing at a much slower rate today. They are exiting at a much slower rate than the medium and smaller ones. Part of the explanation is the regulatory burden. And so what is a disadvantage all taken together can still be an advantage to some. And that helps to explain why it's difficult. To get rid of some of these burdensome regulations, because in some cases it's burdensome all the way to the bank for some enterprises. That sounds
1: reminiscent of the uh, the famous bootleggers <laughs> and Baptist paradigm for understanding how regulations are made. Although in this case it's how regulations continue to exist. Bruce, you know, as we get towards the end of our time here, I think we should look forward, think about the year ahead, and see if there's any predictions you'd like to make, apart from what we've already said, or maybe you can just highlight some of them for what we should expect. It's it's Christmas season, so let's make the Christmas analogy. Should we be expecting a, a lump of coal or some unexpected treats or something in between?
0: Well, if we keep this at a personal level, we have a lot of control over our households and what we might do in our daily lives that can lead to a pleasant day or a pleasant afternoon or a nice walk with your husband or wife or with your daughter or son. And so we can have a good time and a good life any day, even if it's raining. But as we get beyond our personal lives and our personal communities and neighborhoods and so forth and look out at the world, which is what we're talking about. I would say the prospect for the world economy do not look right at all in terms of growth for the year ahead. I think the world taken as a whole and the U.S. economy bearing about the same measure will do well to show positive growth at any level for 2023. But I don't think that we're going to experience a recession that people will say, this is the recession to kill all recessions. And we use that word sometimes, I think, maybe in a mistaken sense. Does that mean we're going to have a recession, some or less? Well, a recession is just defined by a measurement and it has to cross some bright line. And so once you cross the bright line, we say, yes, we have a recession. But it really is a matter of, How negative is that recession and how bad is it on a large number of people? I think we will have negative growth in GDP in the latter half of 2023, but it will not be deep negative growth. That's my expectation. In terms of what we might learn from our experience, I think it would be useful for our leadership, political leadership, to take a deep breath and they say, based on this grueling time we have all endured with COVID and its effect, and now with war and its effect combined, I think it's a good time for us to step back, identify some commissions to make long-term investigations of how we have been doing things to see if there is a better way. One of those would be regulation, we've been talking Another would be guidance used by the Fed in making its decisions. Is there a better way for it to rely on predictable rules and traditions as opposed to yesterday's announcement from the Department of Labor Statistics on what the consumer price index is? So slowing down, looking about, trying to identify better paths forward that would be in a sense, more predictable, a little more coherent, more rules-based and principles-based, knowing when we compromise them, but having principles in place and rules to follow that would help the rest of the participants in the economy to have a better idea of what tomorrow might bring.
1: That sounds like excellent advice for both policymakers and the Fed, as well as for, for you and me at home on on how we can grin and bear it, so to speak, for, for the next year or so. Bruce, it's been a pleasure, as always. I thank you for joining me. And on, on behalf of uh, my colleagues at the Mercatus Center and Bruce, to all of our listeners, I wish you a safe and happy holiday season. Thank you for joining me again, Bruce.
0: We have a lot to celebrate. Great being with you. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. Or for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus.